0: The Rare Drug Development Symposium is an interactive global genes event produced in partnership with the Penn Medicine Orphan Disease Center that focuses on educating both beginners and advanced participants on the drug development process. Join us for this year's symposium, June 10th to 11th. An optional pre-conference workshop on June 9th will review the current landscape of rare drug development. This is an opportunity to interact with experts, patients, and advocates in the field and uncover your role in advancing drug therapies. To learn more or register, go to globalgenes.org forward slash rdds. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The advent of genome editing is creating the potential to correct the underpinnings of genetic diseases by rewriting the mutations that cause them. Before these emerging technologies can be put to use to treat and cure genetic diseases broadly, a number of challenges must be overcome. These include such things as validating new gene editing technologies, finding ways to deliver them precisely to the right cells and tissues in the body, and developing means to detect off-target effects. The National Institutes of Health established the Somatic Cell Genome Editing Program to address broad challenges of gene editing with the goal of accelerating the development of new therapies for a wide range of conditions through the creation of a toolkit that could be made available to biomedical researchers. We spoke to Eric Sondheimer, co-chair of the Somatic Cell Genome Editing Consortium steering committee, about the program, the challenges it's seeking to address, and its potential to accelerate the development of a new generation of genetic medicines. Eric, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you.
0: You recently co-authored a perspective piece in Nature about the National Institutes of Health's Somatic Cell Genome Editing Program, its effort to accelerate the development of safe and more effective means of editing genomes, and the challenges it's seeking to address. Perhaps we can begin with some orientation when people talk about gene editing. What's meant by that term, and how would you contrast it to what people think of as gene therapy? Yes, uh,
1: those are excellent questions. Um, So what we mean by gene editing is making changes to the actual genome of a patient in terms of its therapeutic applications. Um, Gene therapy is where you introduce a new copy of a gene that has therapeutic value. So one analogy that I've heard that I think can be useful is that if you have a car and it has four tires, and one of the tires goes flat, gene therapy is like sticking a fifth tire on top of the one that went flat. And so the the flat tire is still there. You haven't fixed it. You've just covered it up by putting another tire on it, on that same wheel. Um, Whereas genome editing, you're not just sticking in a fifth tire and wheel, you're actually fixing the flat. And so uh, you're you're doing an edit to the native gene itself in the patient. And so if you have a patient, I'm going to you know pick diseases at random. Let's say we have um, cystic fibrosis in the lung, and the CFTR gene is mutated in that patient. There are some gene therapies that simply add a new copy of CFTR. That would be gene therapy, but not gene editing. Whereas if you go in and you actually repair the mutation in the defective copy in the patient, that is genome editing. You're, you're rewriting.
0: The tools and technology to perform gene editing have been evolving rapidly. What can we do with the technology today? And, and how big a gap is there between what exists today and the promise and potential to use this as a, an approach to address genetic diseases?
1: So in terms of what is already advancing into the clinic, there are some very impressive things going on. Um, it is somewhat limited in terms of the tissues that can be accessed and in terms of the nature of the edits that can be made. The tissues that can be accessed is an important one because mutations that cause disease, in many instances, that manifests itself In a particular tissue. So, for instance, um, cystic fibrosis being a good example, the tissue in which the mutation really matters the most is the lung. And so, if you were to repair that mutation in some other tissue, I'll come up with a random one, you know, the spleen or something like that, you wouldn't actually do anything useful. So, in many instances, the edit is focused on a particular tissue. And so there are some tissues that are easier to, they're still very difficult, but they're easier to access and do editing in than others based on the delivery technologies and things like that that already currently exist. So with that in mind, there are clinical trials already happening where it is cells from the Um, bone marrow effectively, stem cells that give rise to blood lineages that can be edited outside the body and then reintroduced and re-engrafted. And this would be for um, uh, treating diseases such as sickle cell disease and beta thalassemia and uh, things like that. Those are already in the works and working their way through clinical trials with some very impressive results. Another tissue that is already reachable at least to the extent that the fda is allowing clinical trials to go forward is the retina um, Editas is a company in massachusetts that has a clinical trial ongoing in which editing is done in the retina for a form of uh, childhood blindness and then finally the liver um, there's there are other clinical trials going on including one from uh, a company also in massachusetts called Intellia where the editing is being done in the liver. So these are some examples of things that can be done in terms of tissues that are being accessed. And then the other thing that is more doable now and that we hope to be able to get beyond is that the, the type of editing in which you take a defective gene and then just simply break it in other words, to disrupt it so that it can no longer be expressed and cause damage, that is a relatively straightforward edit to do. And so you're simply introducing inactivating mutations. You're not actually fixing a defective gene itself. So by doing gene inactivation in particular tissues, such as the blood lineages and the retina and the liver, Those are the kinds of things that there's already a lot of uh, progress that has been made. So with regards to the SCGE, the goal is to go beyond those things and really go after some tougher targets, because that's where the NIH considered there to be the, the most unmet need. And so, for instance, there are some groups that are targeting the musculature. There are other groups that are targeting the central nervous system, Um, These are examples, and there are many more within the consortium, and so it's about trying to bring delivery tools to allow new types of tissues to be edited, potentially therapeutically, and also to try to enable the introduction of other flavors of edits that are not just about breaking a gene, but perhaps actually repairing a gene.
0: The NIH Common Fund in 2018 launched the Somatic Cell Genome Editing Program. What was the need it saw, and what was the mandate for the program?
1: So it saw multiple needs, and there are uh, multiple sub-programs within the program. So the biggest need that it saw was to address the challenge of delivery, Um, because, again, delivery is really one of the main barriers currently uh, to implementation beyond a few tissues that are already at least somewhat accessible. And so in terms of the numbers of grants that were um, awarded and the dollar amounts of the grants that were awarded, the biggest chunk significantly by a significant margin – is to address the challenges of delivery. Um, Those are not the only ones though. In addition, they have separate initiatives for other aspects of genome editing. And even though they're smaller, they're still very important core components of the consortium. One of them is to expand the repertoire of genome editing platforms. And so examples of this would be to, for instance, uh, explore genomic diversity in additional categories of microbes to find not just new Cas9s, not just new Cas12, but, but other things that we can't even anticipate ahead of time that could be very useful as a genome editing platform. In addition, things like base editing and prime editing, both of which were developed in the lab of David Liu at the Broad Institute, um are uh, other examples of kind of next generation editing platforms. And we, we the consortium, want to continue to develop these and develop new capabilities from them. Um, okay, so the in addition to delivery, we have expanding the repertoire of um, editing platforms. We have another one about Tissue systems for detecting and understanding potential adverse events. And I know that's a bit of a mouthful, but in a, in, a, in a nutshell, what it means is that we want to be able to explore and investigate and understand things that can go wrong, but of course, to not have to wait until clinical trials happen to understand those things, and so there are platforms in development that are described, for instance, as lab on a chip, as it were, or organ on a chip, um, Where, and then there are related things referred to as organoids um, that can be used as a surrogate for human tissue. It's not human tissue in the sense that it came out of a person's body, but it still has many of the characteristics of a tissue. And you can do the sorts of analyses to understand whether there are problems associated with, for instance, off-target editing or unintended genomic damage even at the on-target site and things like that. So again, just to recap, delivery, expanding the repertoire of editing systems, um, and... and um, biological systems for understanding uh, adverse um, events. And then last but not least, one very important feature of the consortium gets back to concerns that have been raised over the last 10 or 15 years about preclinical biomedical research in general, um, and that is the rigor and reproducibility. And there have been exercises where, for instance, biotech companies and pharma companies have tried to reproduce many of the preclinical studies that have been reported in the peer-reviewed literature. And the frequency with which those reproductions were done, this was back in 2012, was shockingly low. And so over those years, Francis Collins and other leadership at the NIH They have been doing many things across many different uh, funding initiatives to try to improve rigor and reproducibility. And so within the SCGE, it's a very unique program in the sense that we are forcing ourselves to do third-party testing of the technologies that are being developed for the sake of reproducibility. And so... The groups that are funded for the delivery program are are developing their own technologies in their own laboratories. But then in addition to doing that, they are required. It's a mandated milestone near the end of year three. They have to send their materials to a testing center. And a testing center has to show that they can also make the technology work and get the a comparable level of editing as well. And only if you pass that reproducibility milestone do you advance to the fourth and fifth years of funding, where things move into uh, large animal testing.
0: This is a six-year, one hundred ninety million dollar program. Can you give some sense of the scope in terms of investigators, institutions, projects involved?
1: Uh, Yes, Uh, the exact numbers I don't have right in front of me, but um, roughly speaking, I believe there are 45 different grants that are being issued. Some of these grants have multiple investigators uh, and can be across multiple institutions such that I believe there are in the neighborhood of 70 or 80 different institutions. Nearly all of them are in the U.S. There are some participants in the consortium in Canada and Europe, but it's mostly based in the United States.
0: The program, as its name suggests, is limited to somatic editing as opposed to germline editing. The effects of somatic editing is limited to the individual whose genome is edited, and those changes can't be passed on to future generations. What's the significance of that limitation? Is it a, a matter of ethics, of safety, or is it intended to address some potential public concerns about the technology?
1: It's really all of the above. I believe that this is based on decisions that have been made you know, at the highest levels of the NIH. Francis Collins and other NIH leadership um, eff- effectively have said that germline genome editing is something that we are not currently going to support, we the NIH. Um, and Francis Collins has even joined calls for, you know, a temporary moratorium on it, partly to understand the safety aspects of it, but partly also, I believe, in recognition that it needs to be a conversation that is not just about what scientists want to do, but it needs to be a, a broader societal Um, dialogue that determines to what extent, if at all, such research will go forward. And so, yes, you're right. Somatic is actually in the name, and the program is limited to somatic tissues. And what we mean by that is not only do we not have any explicit goals to try to accomplish germline editing, it actually goes further in the sense that we are required to analyze whether any unintended germline editing has happened. And if so, that is deemed unacceptable as a consequence. So not only are we not trying to do it, we are making sure that we don't do it even without meaning to.
0: CRISPR-Cas9 has become synonymous with gene editing, but there were technologies that existed prior to that to perform gene editing and new ones that have emerged how big a toolkit exist and what do we know about the versatility of these tools? How, how big a tool set will we need?
1: Yeah. Um, I believe that it would generally be, uh, the case for scientists in the field that the, the bigger, the better in terms of the breadth of tools that are available. And, um, everybody acknowledges that there is no one particular platform, there is no one particular tool that is going to serve every need for every type of genome edit in every potential tissue. So really, the the more options we have, the better off we will be. So yes, there is a very substantial part of the consortium that is focused on CRISPR-Cas9. There are others that are focused on CRISPR-Cas12. the one of the funded groups in uh, expanding the repertoire of genome editing uh, includes that from uh, Jillian Banfield and Jennifer Doudna at UC Berkeley, where they are identifying uh, CRISPR Cas5 and CRISPR Cas14 and various other, you know, really new flavors. With probably more that will continue to come out um, over the years. So the more microbial genomes we sequence, the more we will likely find additional platforms. And then finally, David Liu's lab I mentioned at the Broad Institute that developed base editing and developed prime editing. Um, There is a a group at Yale that is doing not CRISPR at all, but rather a, a type of synthetic chemistry that makes a nucleic acid analog that can induce editing. So yes, CRISPR is the biggest piece of it. CRISPR-Cas9 is the biggest piece of that, but we all expect that there will be additional platforms coming forward that we can't even imagine right now, and we want to make sure that we are uh, leaving ourselves the space to identify those and put them to good use.
0: You mentioned some of the clinical trials that are going on right now. As with gene therapies, it appears the eye and liver are the low-hanging fruit why are these easier to target than cells in other parts of the body?
1: So the eye and liver, those are the ones that are truly in vivo editing. Uh, in addition, it would be the, um, the, the blood system where the editing happens outside the body, ex vivo, and then reintroduced. But getting back to the in vivo, like you said, with the eye and with the uh, liver, let's start with the eye. Um, there is already a substantial body of research in terms of doing gene therapy successfully in the eye. And there is an FDA approved uh, gene therapy called Luxturna that is uh, having great success for other forms of inherited blindness. Um, And so effectively it capitalizes on technology that was already developed for gene therapy, but now uses it for genome editing where the viral vector that you're introducing into the patient directly by injection, local injection into the vitreous humor on top of the retina, um, that instead of delivering a copy of the gene, you're delivering the, a copy of the editing machinery itself. And so it is gene editing rather than gene therapy. So there are platforms already in existence for that purpose and they can be repurposed for genome editing. From the standpoint of the liver, much the same. There are technologies that are already developed for um, RNAi therapies and things like that, as well as lipid nanoparticles. And the liver is a place where a huge fraction of the body's blood flow just naturally goes through. Um, And so if you introduce something by subcutaneous or intravenous injection, a lot of it is going to go straight to the liver. And we've learned a lot about how to get uptake in the liver. So really, these are places that are best positioned to capitalize on earlier generations of therapeutics um, simply applied to genome editing. And I think that's the reason why we're seeing these come along first.
0: As with gene therapies, gene editors need a vector to carry them to where they need to go to do their job. You mentioned the challenge of delivery being among the largest. As you think about how big a challenge that is, where does developing the right vectors come in and does the ability to target desired cells and tissues ultimately depend on the selection of the right vector?
1: It certainly can, yes. Um, it, it's worth noting that um, vectors, like for instance, in the in the sense of something called adeno-associated virus, which is an FDA-approved vector for certain forms of gene therapy, those are definitely important modalities. That's how the delivery is done for the studies in the eye that I just described. And uh, yes, there are major components of the SCGE that are trying to improve on these current vectors, either to make them more specific for a particular tissue, or to um, expand the range of tissue specificity. For instance, some of these vectors are particularly good at going to the liver. Others might be better at going to the musculature. Um, And trying to identify forms of these that can target one tissue or another is an important effort. In addition, an important effort is to overcome some of the current limitations of how much room you have in that vector to code for the editing machinery. So developing new vector capabilities is definitely an important part of it. But many other efforts don't use viral vectors at all. And so there are industry initiatives and there are funded groups within the SCGE that are doing the direct injection or introduction of Cas9 protein loaded with a guide. And so there's no vector at all. You're just putting the machinery in, in a form that can actually reach a target cell and get into the nucleus and execute the edit. There are others that are using messenger RNA technology. Of course, we're hearing a lot of that in the form of the um, COVID vaccines that many of us are receiving. The trial that is ongoing in the liver, courtesy of Intelia, uses messenger RNA delivery. And so protein delivery and messenger RNA delivery have a couple of very important advantages, which is that they are much more transient. The editor is only in uh, there for a very short period of time. And it's expected that that will greatly reduce the possibility of adverse events arising from immune system activation, because these are bacterial proteins that you're, that you're introducing. So yes, vectors are important, but they are not the only game in town for delivery. Uh, RNP delivery and messenger RNA delivery is also very much in play.
0: Testing is another important component of the SCGE, the development of animal models and means of testing human biological systems to detect unintended consequences of gene editing where are we in terms of having what we need to do this? Um,
1: Yeah, that's a a good question. I think in terms of human biological systems like uh, liver on a chip and organoids and so forth, there's been tremendous uh, progress, but we're nowhere near where we need to be uh, in order to understand how tissues and cells will respond to the editing events that we are trying to actually execute. From the standpoint of animal systems, um, one important aspect of the consortium is that because it's a common fund program, basically what that means is that it comes out of the office of the director of the NIH, and it's it's not driven by a particular institute that has a focus on a particular set of diseases or set of target tissues or anything. It's intended to be a program that will have benefit across all the institutes of the NIH. And so for that reason, they do not specify a particular disease gene target, they do not specify a particular preclinical model, anything like that. A lot of the animal studies that need to be done, especially in small animals are using reporter systems that are advantageous for detecting editing events and understanding them. And so what that means is that, for instance, if you have a successful editing event, you might activate the expression of a fluorescent protein that you can detect easily by microscopy. Uh, Just to cite one example. So the animal systems in question for the initial phase with small animals, it is exclusively being done with reporters that will help us to understand the efficiency and the efficacy of the edit that we're doing. Um, for clinical for preclinical development, the FDA pretty much requires a phase that it uses large animal systems for both safety and efficacy studies as well. And so the later years involve testing that will be done either in pigs or in non-human primates. There, just technologically, it's much more difficult to create and establish reporter systems within a reasonable time frame. So that will not um, likely be initially a component of it. It might during later years, but initially it will probably not go through um, reporters. It'll go through editing of, of native LoCI in the genomes of those test subjects.
0: One other important thing the SCGE is doing it, seeking to create common metrics and standards. Why does this matter, and how will it get others to adopt them? Well, it will. It,
1: well, so for a couple things. First of all, this is set up as a consortium, and as usual, the a goal of doing it as a consortium is to try to maximize the degree to which the impact and the advances of the consortium can be greater than the sum of its parts. And so we have people who are expanding the repertoire of editing platforms, and we also have people who are figuring out new delivery routes. So that means that it would be a pretty natural thing for somebody who identifies a new editing platform to say, hey this group over here at this university, you're developing this new vector for targeting the central nervous system. That would be a perfect route for delivering my new editing platform. Let's collaborate and see whether we can, uh, you know, really get the synergies from these different initiatives. And then in addition, somebody's delivery module or editing platform might be really good for one tissue And it might raise the question is, well, could it be equally good for a different tissue? And so this type of interoperability, um, if it can be baked into the system to the maximum extent possible, can really accelerate um, development and having common metrics um, and common readouts will allow these things to be made more interoperable and will also allow the comparisons between different systems to be more directly comparable. So um, that's really what is meant by by standards and interoperability. And then putting all of these together into a, a single database referred to as the SCGE toolkit Uh, which will eventually be public-facing, will allow others to go and access that information and that data to enable them to explore these comparisons uh, directly themselves eventually.
0: And ultimately, the idea here is to accelerate the development of gene editing therapies. What do you think the potential for SCG to do that is? Well,
1: I mean, I think it's high, um, and I hope other people agree that it's high. That's really the whole goal. If it turns out not to be high, then I think it would be difficult to describe the program as a success. And so, yes, um, this is publicly funded. It's supported by taxpayers. Um, it could well be that uh, you know, it gets it's subject to patents in the usual way, like academic research often is. And companies could be spun out and so forth, but not necessarily. And so um, public research is intended to be to the benefit of the taxpaying public, and that will be the goal of the SCGE as well.
0: Eric Sondheimer, co-chair of the Somatic Cell Genome Editing Consortium Steering Committee, co-lead author of the recent Nature piece, and a professor in the RNA Therapeutics Institute, and the Program for Molecular Medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Eric, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. For more information about rare disease and to connect to the rare disease community, go to globalgenes.org. To keep up on the latest news and trends affecting the rare disease community, be sure to visit raredaily.org.